Today's episode is sponsored by Wild Health. Wild Health provides personalized medicine that takes into account not just what you look like on the outside, but your DNA, your biometrics, your microbiome, your lifestyle, and comes up with your ideal diet. If you need any supplements and lifestyle to optimize health and maximize health span, I have gone through the Wild Health program with blood tests, DNA, lifestyle analysis, and you know, it's actually quite revelatory. At 51 years old, I thought I knew what there was to know about how my body worked, but that was far from the truth. And if you want to go deep, 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 they also have a fellowship where you can learn how to incorporate this kind of medicine into your practice. Go to wildhealth.com and use the code STIMULUS for 10% off any Wild Health care plan. Let's do the show. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Orman, and you are listening to Stimulus a podcast that deconstructs ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Here we go. Hello, my friends. If you're coming back, welcome back. And if you're new to the show, it is great to have you. As you can see on your podcast or on the website, the title of this episode is How to Be an Effective Leader. Now, there's not one way to lead. Just go to any bookstore, go on Amazon and look at leadership books. You're going to find hundreds and hundreds and all sorts of different approaches. But you know, you can kind of tell when someone is a good leader. You just, you just feel it. And we're actually going to break down what it means. And I think that a lot of people view a leader as someone who has a title, a title behind their name or in front of their name or on their desk like the CEO, the director, the commander, whatever, but leadership is not a title. I know, and I know that you know, high-level administrators who are horrible leaders. When I worked in a kitchen as a teenager, there were line cooks who were amazing leaders. Leadership is a state of mind. It is an approach. And in today's show, we have two guests. Later on, you're going to hear from Colonel Jim Zarnick. He's also a physician. He's the Deputy Chief of Staff, Surgeon, United States Army Special Operations Command. He previously served as the Command Surgeon for U.S. Army Africa, and he was instrumental in coordinating the multinational response to the African Ebola outbreak that happened in the early 2010s. But first, we're going to hear from Dr. Josh Boucher. He's an emergency physician. He's an EMS director, has spent quite a bit of time in tactical emergency medicine. That is when you, as the physician, go out with the SWAT team, serving as medical director of his local SWAT team. So let's hear from Dr. Josh Boucher. And what, in his mind, does good leadership look like? Leadership is more of a philosophy, more of a a mindset on how you approach your daily interactions. And leadership, most of all, is about people. It's about other people, not yourself. It's about developing other people's talents and skills. It's about being, I hate to use the word professional uh, when talking about this, but but using you know those skills when you are in a professional situation or in a personal situation. It's that philosophy on how can I help you achieve your goals from where I am. You're now in a leadership position and you went from not doing that to doing that. What are the steps that you take to create that culture? Actually, let me let me take a step back. What's the culture that you want? 
what is culture? Is it something that's written on the wall? Is it a bunch of philosophies or is it a bunch of, you know, written statements that you're going to say is your department's mission statement? It's not an easy question to answer. A metaphor for it is what are your colleagues doing on a random afternoon at 3 p.m. when their shift is over at 5? Or if you work from 9 to 5, you know, it's 3 p.m., it's a Friday afternoon, what are you focused on? Are you focused on, I can't wait to get out of here because it's the weekend? Or are you focused on, I still have a couple of hours left, let's see what else I can get done? You want a culture where everyone feels empowered to make their own decisions, and everyone feels that they've been given the opportunity to improve and to get better. You want a culture where people want to work with you to do things. It's that kind of environment that you want to create, and that is very difficult. You know, I'll be totally honest, I've violated many of these principles. I've done a lot of things wrong. And another big part of leadership is self-reflection and being able to recognize and accept when you've made a mistake or you've done something wrong instead of blaming somebody else or blaming the situation or blaming the environment. All blaming does is deflects the true cause of something. Now, let's say I walked outside and got struck by lightning. I mean, that I can blame the lightning on that. That wasn't my <laughs> fault. But for most, for most of the things, you have to accept blame. You have to understand that you know we're not perfect. We all make mistakes. And this brings up a principle that I think many successful people use as their anchor is that failure is your greatest teacher. The time that you learn is when you fail. If you can analyze that, if you can be critical of that and honest about that, then that's where you grow. It's such a different mindset than what I think exists in most places, most companies, most emergency departments, is that failure is a time when you are going to be put under the microscope, when you're going to be prosecuted and persecuted, and it's not a learning opportunity. That actually brings us to another concept called the ERO relationship. ERO stands for event plus response equals outcome. You can only control your response. You cannot control events and you cannot control outcomes. You can only control how you react to them. What do you do in the face of an event? And a lot of like we were mentioning about self-reflection and accepting blame, if you fail at something, you can't blame the event. You can't blame the outcome that you failed. The only thing that you can blame really is the response is how did you respond to this event? If you attempted to, to do something and you failed at it, what could you do better next time to improve that outcome? For example, if the ER is busy and you're getting bogged down, you can't blame the ER for being busy. It's an ER. That's what we do. It's, it's always busy. It's always a ton of patients that need to be seen. You only control how you respond to it. Do you respond to it by getting cranky and irritable and, and yelling at nurses and getting frustrated? You could, but then you're not going to have a great outcome. So you really need to focus on what you can do. What can you respond to? I hear stories from attendings some of their residents or some of their trainees are not wanting to get their hands dirty, stretch themselves and put themselves at risk of failing, such as there's two patients that you can see. There's one who's extremely complex versus an ankle sprain. The frustration is, is that a lot of trainees will take the ankle sprain and not go for that sick patient. Whereas this is the time when you should be seeing 
the sickest people, the most complex people, because once you get out there in the field of operations, in the battlefield of the emergency department and you don't have any backup, you need to have those skills. What do you think is a step that you can take or what is a way that you can reset that attitude? You shouldn't set yourself up for failure or not knowing something to let me just jump on the most difficult stuff. And this is not going to be an easy training period, but I need to go through the gauntlet. I need to walk through the fire to be forged into something harder and better. So if you're the kind of person who is just going to fly by, you're going to do the minimum you have to get out of something. You don't have any desire to get better. You're going to do exactly what you just said. You're going to see the ankle sprain. You're not going to push yourself to get better. You have to have self-motivation. That's not something that's easy to teach. It's not something that's easy to to find within yourself, especially when things are happening, like the ER is busy, everybody's unhappy. It's very hard to be self-motivating, but it all comes down to things like competitive excellence. How are you going to be able to perform at an elite level? You have to prepare at an elite level. You have to have that discipline to get better, that desire to get better. As a resident, you want to practice like you're an attending. And I was this way when I was at the end of residency. I couldn't wait to finish residency. I was like, I can't wait. You know, it's going to be so much better when I'm an attending. (laughs) Guess what? You become an attending and you're doing the exact same thing. You know, maybe you're the one making the decision now, but it's not like medicine suddenly changed the next week when you work as an attending, not a resident. And how you practice, how you train, that's how you're going to play. That's the military, that's sports, and that's medicine. You have to do it with intent. I think that that is something that can be a challenge for people who are in medical training. Say you're in the military. When you go into a a mission, you could die. And your training is going to determine whether your teammates live, you live, and the mission's a success. It's not as direct a result to you in the medical training. It's not you that's going to die. It's your patient that's going to die. And that is is more of an abstract risk because it's not necessarily a risk to you. You could be sued, you could be embarrassed, but it's not like it's a threat to your life. When you look at the military data, there's a lot of hesitancy for soldiers to pull the trigger. Stress, it could be fear, hesitancy to take somebody else's life. But one of the biggest things is, is the bond between a unit, the unit cohesion. And that is really one of the biggest sustaining or motivating forces in in soldiers. And that can be related to medicine. Your team is your unit. And how well you work with your team is directly related to your mission outcome. The mission being good outcome for the patient. But this doesn't require trust. It requires confidence in each other, requires communication. Some of these things that can help improve our outcomes, improve our working environment, are basic Steps of humanity, getting to know your team. If all you do is bark orders all day at them, they're going to see you as the doc who barks orders at everybody. But asking things like their personal life, where do you live? Do you have kids? You married? You know, what are your interests? Getting to know your team causes a lot more cohesion within everybody. And then everybody likes working with each other. And those things tend to lead to, to more positive environments, especially at work, especially in the emergency department where we work with the same team every single day. I experienced what you're talking about recently, had a patient with chest pain who was you know, kind of algorithmically being worked up. And it was a very atypical situation. And a nurse who I had worked with for years said, hey, we should just get another EKG. And it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily time. I think part of that in the in the leadership, and I want to get into this a little more in a second, is unless it's dangerous or unless it's wrong, 
consider that your answer should be yes. Your answer shouldn't be no just because I'm the leader. Oh, you've got this idea. It probably has value. So yeah, let's just get that EKG. Dynamic change was having an MI. Boom. And it was just this other person on the team who had tremendous value, a lot of experience, whereas it could have been, hey, I'm making the calls here. And this is a unit because I'm the captain and everybody else goes on the away missions. It's a little bit of a Star Trek business here. We are definitely in this together. Now, there has to be a leader to direct things. It can't just be anarchy. Your thoughts of unit cohesion just making me think of this, that that really is what brings so much satisfaction and also quality to the care we give. That's a great example. And that environment that you created enabled that nurse to feel comfortable enough to come to you with a suggestion that one may say is outside their scope of practice, but that's never outside our scope of practice. If the tech comes to me, if they come to me and say, hey, Josh, this person doesn't look so good, I'm going to get out of my seat and go see the patient. You know, because I've created that environment where I want them to come to me if they have questions, if they have concerns. When you've created that environment, people are much more likely to come to you with things. To be a leader, it's just a mindset of an individual. You can be a leader and be the lowest person on the totem pole. You can be a leader in the mailroom. A leader challenges the people below them. They listen when someone speaks. They encourage people to speak their mind. And you don't reward sycophants. You don't reward yes people. You reward honesty, clarity, hard work, and self-reflection. And it's not always easy because the easy thing to do is to reward the yes person. When in reality, you might be rewarding the yes person, but you're actually bringing down the entire organization as a whole because the people who are going out there and speaking their mind and accomplishing things are the ones who are not getting rewarded. That kind of behavior, whether or not you think it is, is very transparent. It is very obvious to everybody in the organization. You have taken over leadership as the EMS director for a really large place. And that's no small job. You are interacting with medics, with doctors, with administrators, and you took over from someone else. And That transition is going to happen to a lot of people, a lot of people who are listening to this, people who are going to become directors of their group. Maybe they're going to go into business or something, or maybe somebody's listening to this and they're in business and they're going to go into a position of leadership. And when I say that, I mean, your job is to be the leader. And that's not only your job, that's your job title. What do you think are the keys to success when you make that transition, when you take over? One thing is never bash the prior person that you're taking over for. You don't want to come into an organization being the new person, say, everybody else here who did this before sucked and I want to change all this stuff. You're going back to that behavior of blaming things that have happened. You want to thank the person who led this place before you. Everyone did did the best job that they could. Whether or not you agree with some of the decisions are, are irrelevant because you'll have the ability to make changes. I think that Outreach is incredibly important and transparency from a leadership position. For example, the clinical leadership team at my EMS organization, we sent out a survey to all the paramedics and all the EMTs and all the nurses, asking them a whole bunch of questions about what protocols you want us to focus on, how can we make some changes in things, what education would you like to see from us, how can we change what we have ongoing right now. And then last, the last question I asked was, do you have any other feedback for us? And a lot of it was very interesting. A lot of it was very self-reflective. We got some feedback that we, we haven't been as responsive as we should be. 
when we're getting an email about something and we're not getting back to them for a couple of weeks, you know, that's on us. We need to do better than that. Outreach and transparency from the top down is, I think, is really important for an organization. If people actually were able to listen to other people and understand where people come from, we would all be much better at, at humanity. Let me give you an example. At one of these seminars I went to, they paired you up with a person who was just sitting next to you, some random person, and they asked you, you had to listen to them talk to you about a problem for three minutes, and you could not say a single word for three minutes. Let me tell you how hard that was, <laughs> because three minutes of listening and not wanting to interject your opinion is very difficult. You know, nobody, everyone wants to give their opinion about things. Nobody takes the time to listen. And when you take the time to listen, you actually can learn something or you, your mind can be changed. It's incredibly difficult to listen without immediately feeling like you want to jump in. I tried to do this with my wife um, and, and she's a lawyer, so it makes this even more difficult. And she's actually caught on to it with me. And she now yells at me for, why stop doing your leadership stuff on me. It's not working. So, so maybe it's helping at work a little bit, but it's definitely not helping at home. Good leadership is about other people, not about you if you're the leader. Your ego isn't the client. And as a leader, self-reflection, critical skill, recognizing when you've made a mistake. And the ERO relationship, I think that this comes from a group called Focus 3. Josh has done a lot of training with them. ERO, event plus response equals outcome. All you can control is your response. And if you fail, don't blame the event. Think about how did you respond? And how you interact and relate to your team, that's going to translate into results. We've all experienced this. The unit cohesion, when there is unit cohesion, it's tremendously motivating. When there's not, going to work can really suck. And is there an environment where your team feels that they can speak freely without repercussions or without any sort of belittling or retribution, and also that they are empowered to make decisions? When you take over as a leader, try not to malign the previous leader. That just blames, doesn't move anything forward. Our second guest is one of the most engaging and thoughtful people I've ever met. And I've only met him once at a conference. We hung out for two days. We ended up actually having a two-hour conversation on life, death, applying philosophy, applying principles to action. Amazing guy. His name is Jim Zarnick. He's an emergency physician. He's also a colonel in the United States Army, and usual proviso, the views he expresses do not necessarily represent the Department of Defense of U.S. Army. He's a consultant to the United States Army Surgeon General for Operational Medicine. He is the United States Army Medical Liaison to the British Army, the British Ministry of Defense. And you may have actually seen him on the news on CNN a few years back during the Ebola crisis in West Africa. He was part of the U.S. Army leadership helping to manage the pandemic. And actually what happened during the recording on the interview you're about to hear before that, we had a pretty long discussion of exactly what went down in Liberia during the Ebola outbreak. What did things look like on the ground? What were the steps that were taken to get this contained? Really interesting. And we'll release that in the future. But today's discussion isn't about Ebola. It's about leadership. And I've heard from many physicians, actually sometimes even people that aren't even in emergency medicine, Jim's in emergency medicine, but just physicians in general, that Jim's someone they want to follow, want to lead them. What makes someone like that tick? What are the principles that guide them, that evoke that kind of response? And you'll hear some similarities in what Josh talked about, but also some very granular details about how he does it, things he says. We talk about training young leaders. Should a leader be seen as a buddy, as a friend? The importance of a shared sense of purpose. 
how to start a conversation with a biker gang in a bar, handling email when you get maybe 50 messages an hour, and Jim's call to action for us to help mentor military medics. Here we go. In your position, you are a leader, a leader of many, but you're also a trainer of leaders. I know many people who model you and how you do it in how they lead others. Looking at that from the bird's eye view, what mistakes do you see young leaders or people put in a leadership position make? And then when they correct those particular mistakes, they become good or effective leaders. Young leaders far too often fail to realize that it's not about them. As a result, their ego is in the forefront of what they do. And so they see the world through their eyes and every decision or potential decision or failure or success through their eyes. And fundamentally, we're all on this planet together and no one's getting out of this thing we call life alive. So this is a joint venture with a very clear endpoint. And so what many leaders, young leaders do that fail is they, they fail to check their ego at the door and they fail to make it about a mission or a common goal rather about themselves. Learn how to say, I need your help. And then rather than saying, why the f are you doing that? Or why would you do that? Rather say, would you please help me understand? I'm sure there's a reason why you chose to do X. I just need to understand it. If I'm a leader, my job what I do day in and day out is not to execute the tasks to get the mission accomplished. My job is to ensure that the people who are actually going to execute the tasks are taken care of and they will know that my first and foremost job is to take care of them. If I take care of them, they'll take care of the mission. When you're a leader in any organization, it is about the people that you're leading who ultimately will execute it. And if they believe that you are invested in them and invested in their well-being, when you really need them to burn the midnight oil, they will do it. And they will embrace your vision because you're passionate about taking care of them and your vision is not just about you or your bank account. When you're leading people, a lot of people, there's this balance between being approachable, but also being able to use a stern hand. And what is the balance between being respected, being feared, being liked as far as the important aspects of it? I think, I think a lot of leaders will do things like, oh, I just want, I want my subordinates or my team to like me. And maybe there'll be a pushover. Or the complete opposite of that is they will fear me and they will listen to me, but then it's like they have not developed any sense of respect as you're talking about, you know, considering what their needs are. That's how you develop respect is you respect others. But looking at the overlap between being liked, being respected, being feared, I mean, what, what's the right mix there? First, I've got to be very clear as a leader what the vision and what the mission of the organization is. And part of that describes how we are going to engage with each other. So if I tell you from the get-go that this is a values-based organization and we embrace values of dignity and respect, of service, of personal courage, of integrity, we lay out for people upfront what is important. The next step then is as a leader, you've got to live it. You can't just talk it. 
You've got to live it. And when it comes from a discipline, a fear, a hate, a like standpoint, I tell people I am in a leadership position here. And so I am leading the team, but I'm also tasked to be a judger as well, because you will all force me to make judgments on your actions. I'm not forcing myself to do that. You are putting me when something untoward happens. You put me in that position. Understand that I can be friendly, but that doesn't mean I'm your friend because you're going to think that a friend, you know, people say a friend will bust you out of jail. A real friend will be on the jail cell with you. If I'm your leader, I'm neither of those. I can be friendly and I can look after your well-being, but I'm not responsible for your actions, but I am responsible for the organization. And so if I tell everybody, if I tell them in, in a clinic set situation, your job is to take care of the patient. My job is to take care of you. If they see me taking care of them and they fail to take care of the patient, then by default, I'm, I have the moral high ground because I'm living the values and they're not. And then I just say, would you please help me understand what I'm failing to see here? The patient did not get taken care of, and you have gotten taken care of. So what am I missing? What's going on on the outside? What is distracting you from it? Because it falls into one of three areas. You didn't realize you had to do it, which means that's my fault. You realize you had to do it, but you didn't have the resources to do it. That's now both of our fault. Or you realize you had to do it, but you chose not to do it, and that's your fault. And that's my job to judge. It's funny. I don't think about hate. I don't think about fear. I don't think about liking. I say, what's the task? What's the mission and what's the vision? Why are we here in the morning? And if the only reason for you to get out of bed in the morning is for a paycheck, you're probably in an okay job right now if you're just in a survival mode. But once you get beyond that survival mode, you better have a sense of purpose. And my job as a leader is to generate a shared sense of purpose in that organization. That sense of purpose is what causes them to get out of bed in the morning. People move to action. People act because of emotion. Often for me as a leader, I need to evoke an emotion in them, like belief, like passion, like love, that helps them see why this is the right thing to do. If I'm successful at that, and it's a shared vision, a shared passion, which it doesn't mean I say it say it out in front of them, but I sit back in my office and I play Tetris by you know and drink gin and tonics, <laughs> then that fails. I can be friendly, but it's not my job to be your friend. And if you expect me to be your friend in the traditional way of, of busting you out of jail, that's not what this is about. That doesn't mean I can't offer you a hug and really mean it, but it just means that I'm in a different position. You are well known for starting conversations and talking with anybody, no matter who they are, and then getting into a deep conversation. And a lot of people are uncomfortable with that. Gabby Reese, the volleyball player, she has this mantra of even if she's feeling nervous, she thinks, okay, go first, go first. Always be the first one to act. Always be the first one to talk. How do you start a conversation with strangers? And what is it about that that then leads to hours and hours of deep philosophical talking. Laughter is a great remedy for a sense of nervousness or a tense situation. And for me, the safest person to be the brunt of a joke is myself. So if I can 
get a sense of that there is, if we've got to break the ice or there's nervousness around, I will absolutely look to do, say something, do something that cause people to laugh and laugh at me or laugh at some part of the environment. But we have one of two choices. We can either make people feel good or we can make people feel shitty, but it's an active process. And joy in people's life doesn't just happen. We make joy happen. And joy is a much better feeling in the world and gets people's attention focused much better than hate. I try to generate some type of joy, and that might be laughter, that might be buying drinks, it doesn't matter. From a buying drinks standpoint or buying people meals, my goal is to die with no money. Why do I need money when I'm dead, right? I purposely generate conversations that are not about how was your orange juice today or how was your peas today? That's all irrelevant. It's rubbish. It's filler. It's wasted breath. What we don't do is talk honestly about what motivates us. What are our frustrations in life? How can you lean on me? How can I help? Let's say we're at a bar having some Guinness stout and across the bar is a motorcycle gang. And these look like rough customers. In fact, they are rough customers. It's not just the weekend warrior accountants. It's like, oh no, this is a legit motorcycle gang. And I said, hey, Jim, I want you to go start a conversation with those guys. How would you approach that? How would you break the ice? And what would be your demeanor? Very much a sense of humility. And it's always from the standpoint of asking for help. So I would walk up to them and I would say, excuse me, gentlemen, I apologize for interrupting, but I, I'm looking for your help. I need your help. Would you please help me understand probably the biggest ways in which motorcycle gangs are misinterpreted or misrepresented in the media or what are some of the common beliefs that are just wrong? Because I know that you are people just like me. You believe in a sense of a, a family and a sense of code. You work together as a team. And we all came from different routes, but we all didn't, were not born into this motorcycle gang. But there's a, many people who will cast dispersions on a motorcycle gang. Would you help me understand where most of us just fail to understand correctly? Right to the core, just kind of, hey, I want to take a heart biopsy. Let's see what it looks like inside. You are clearly putting them above yourself because they have knowledge that you don't. This isn't the nefarious gym technique of how do I get over on people? I really want to know. I want to know. And I think they have a story to tell. And so rather than just going, oh, it was rainy today. Oh, it's supposed to be rainy tomorrow, which is all rubbish talk. Wouldn't it be awesome to have beers and let these guys tell from all their different perspectives? And then after about five or 10 minutes where they really start to get passionate and believe it, I'll say, look, I can imagine that you are all getting parched and I want to hear more of this. So rather than you get parched, can I please buy you all a round of drinks and we can sit down and I'm just going to listen because this is really helpful for me. People might be thinking that they're hearing about your mission in Liberia and thinking that you're elbow crawling through the mud 24 seven, but a lot of your job as you know a, a leader of many and very complex processes involves Email. How do you manage email? I make it very clear to people that there is no such thing as an urgent or an emergent email. If you need me to respond, you'll call me. Uh, that also applies to texts. There's no such thing as an emergent text because you presume that I have my phone next to me and I'm just waiting for your text to come through. When I do get email, I color code it. 
I make red emails that come from my senior leaders, from my commanders that I must respond to. I'm in the military. We defend democracy, but we don't practice it. So I must (laughs) respond. The amber ones then are emails that are sent only to me, because if they're sent only to me in the two line, then only I can respond. The green ones then, if I am in the two line, but there are other people in the two line, and then the white ones are just ones that I'm CC'd. So you've got to filter them. And so there's a finite amount of time in a day. And then I tell people who regularly who are asking for my help or mentorship, learn how to do your bluff, B-L-U-F, which stands for bottom line up front. If you send me an email, if your bottom line up front can't be shown on a single frame of a standard iPhone, then you're going to fail with that communication. Because I'm going to open it up, I'm going to see the title, and I'm going to read one frame. And then if people ask me for a long response, I'll say, this is going to take some time. When do you need it by? And then I almost always say, do you have a time for a phone call? I'll be happy to call. As we finish up here, if you could summarize or encapsulate your personal philosophy or your approach to life or the Jim Zarnick bumper sticker, what would it be? What would it say? Purpose is embraced, not imposed. May I offer you an embrace? What gets me out of bed is what I have chosen. It's an active choice to engage in the world. The world isn't going to come by and make it happen for you. You've got to do it in everything you do. And when it's an active process of embracing, that means your interaction with other people. If you're going to love other people, love is a verb. It's an active verb, which means, and I do that through an active process of offering people a hug or an embrace. So purpose is embraced, not imposed. May I offer you an embrace? What is your ask for the world of medicine? You're involved in a lot of medicine. You're involved in special operations care. You're involved in just kind of the general care sometimes of just a hospital, but there's a lot under that umbrella. And what do you see as a need or something you'd like to see change? Thanks for asking. Interestingly enough, in the graduate medical education system in the U.S., we train physicians and medical providers and nurses to conduct medicine in a very well-resourced environment. And rarely are we forced to really do triage, right? We may have people waiting to go into the operating room, but we're not really triaging people to go, yep, they're going to die and they're going to live. My ask to every trauma center, to every emergency department room, to every clinical setting in ICU, if you are afforded the opportunity to work with medics from the Department of Defense, run toward that opportunity and embrace that opportunity. Please don't run away and find reasons why you can't do that. The reality is these young men and women are the national treasure of the United States. And we are tasking the young medics, medics, to do medicine in a forward-deployed, austere environment that none of us providers are ever trained to work in. The closest thing they're going to get to that is working in your emergency department and your ICU and you mentoring them, helping them understand how to make clinical decisions. And it's not just about doing procedures. The senior lawyers in the hospital say, no, sorry, we can't have them do this. 
And the financial guy says, well, we don't know how to bill for that. And the nurses say, well, that's well outside their scope of practice and they don't have X, Y, and Z. Look, I got it. I understand. But we're not deploying our healthcare system. We're deploying young medics whose task is to do the best they can in the environments that we are going to send them in. So please, if you have an opportunity, own that opportunity to train them and make it an institutional fix. Because no kidding, your son or your daughter or your family member may be underneath their care. And if we fail to provide them the opportunity to train, we are missioning them to fail. That is a passionate ask for a guy that really believes that even as an emergency medicine doc in combat, I am not a first responder. I may be a first receiver, but I'm not a first responder. And those young medics are. Help me provide them an opportunity to learn good clinical judgment. And it's going to be hard in your institution. And I need your help. Will you please help me? Thank you so much, Jim, for coming on the show. Really enjoyed it. I wish we had about 17 more hours to, uh, to, to go through some more stuff, but perhaps on a future show. Thanks, brother. Be safe. Okay, wh what was that right at the end? You know, Jim's ask. That was leadership. That was in no way about him. That was, how can I take care of those I lead? Well, that's it for today. For complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. There, you can also sign up for our newsletter. You can see some videos. I mean, you can really get down. You can subscribe to Stimulus in pretty much any podcatcher you use, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes. And if it happens to be iTunes, throw down a rating. I read all the reviews and more importantly, so do potential guests. Thanks in advance. Until the next time, be well and keep on rocking.